You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK faces the biggest strike in the history of the NHS. The Netherlands reignites the debate about the value of historical apologies. And what would you pay for the chair that Donald Trump might have been kicked off Twitter from? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rachel Cunliffe and Steve Kinane will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor at the New Statesman, and by Steve Kinane, Europe's Bureau, Europe, rather, Bureau Chief for the ABC. Uh, hello to you both. Hi there, Andrew. Uh, hello. Steve, to you first, because this is your first time on the Monocle Daily, and traditionally, when people are on the Daily for the first time, as well as making them wear the owl costume, and congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Do I look uh, okay in it? You are, car- you, Thank are, you. you are carrying it off with considerable aplomb. Um, we do ask them to explain a bit about who they are and, and how they got here. Okay, so I'm a correspondent for the ABC, the public broadcaster from Australia, equivalent of the BBC in Australia, mm-hmm. and we have a bureau in London and we cover all of Europe. So when you see like the BBC, for example, and they have people in Paris and Berlin and Vienna, (laughs) that's us except going everywhere. You actually have to go to all of them. You don't just have a bunch of different backdrops. You can... No, no, no. We have to go there, which is a joy and a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rachel, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, What have you been up to since we last saw you? I have spent this morning watching all three hours of the latest Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix so that the readers of The New Statesman don't have to. And you don't have to either if you go and read what I said about it. Well, see, you have just explained why you did that because the only two explanations I could have come up with were either that you were professionally obliged to or somebody was holding a gun to the head of a beloved pet. It it was long and I wish there had been more wine. (laughs) <laughs> like at, at, and at what hour of the day were you wishing there was more wine? Oh, when I started at 9am. Wow. Okay, when, when, when does your piece run? I suspect this is going to bring me far more joy than sitting through three hours of that programme ever <laughs> uh, would. It's, it's already up. You can read it on the New Statesman website and it will save you three or possibly six, if you haven't watched the first half, hours of your life. Okay, just as soon, obviously, as people have finished listening to this. Uh, we will start here in the UK, where thousands of NHS nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are undertaking a 12-hour strike with another planned for next Tuesday. Additionally, ambulances will be affected by 24-hour strikes on December 21st and 28th. The nurses' strike is the largest such action in NHS history and is in support of a 19% pay claim, approximately inflation plus 5%, which the Royal College of Nursing claims is an overdue recognition of the rising cost of living and the fact that their wages weren't spectacular even before recent inflation. Um, Rachel, first of all, the NHS nurses are, of course, far from the only people on strike in the UK just at the moment. Does that give this strike more impact or less? 
Definitely more. Uh, so it's hard to keep track at the moment of exactly who is on strike when, but a safe answer is just about everyone. You've got <laughs> rail workers, you've got postal workers, uh, NHS nurses, also ambulance crews. Uh, you've also got a lot of the support staff who, who work in, in the NHS. The, uh, they're, they're balloting teachers, they're balloting junior doctors for strikes next, next month. I think civil servants as well. It's hard to keep track. Basically, it's most of the public sector at various points over the, the next couple of weeks. Um, when you look at support for those strikes across individual industries, there is quite a range. People feel much more sympathetic about, say, nurses striking, which they are doing for the first time in the, the nurses union's mm. history, than they do for, for example, rail workers, who it does seem seem to go on strike every couple of months. Um, however, the fact that so many different industries are going on strike at the same time, the fact that it is primarily about pay during a cost of living crisis when people are really genuinely struggling and you're hearing about people in all of these industries having to use food banks, having to make very difficult decisions about not heating their homes, the sort of compound effect of all the strikes together means that in addition to sympathy for the individuals, you've also got this general sense that the government has to, quote unquote, do something because the country is falling apart and that is what is causing these strikes not the unions although obviously the unions are having quite a big impact as well. Steve it does seem so far according to polling that there is I think a historically unusual amount of sympathy at large for most of the people on strikes especially uh, the nurses. Do you think that holds if these start to go on a while though? Well yes this is this is the first day and I think mm. there's a second 12-hour uh, strike as well from the nurses. I think the sympathy is very high at the moment because most people have had interactions in the hospital system with nurses. Especially see, the last few especially years. Especially last few years. See what great work they do and acknowledge that they're underpaid and undervalued. I mean, an entry-level nurse is on 27,000 quid. Average um, salary is about 37,000. That is not much for people doing that kind of work and doing it as shift work. So there's sympathy because of those personal interactions, because they're underpaid, and also, I think, because they're not regarded as a militant union. This mm. is a, a union, a first strike in 106-year history. So there is sympathy, and I think there will be ongoing sympathy if the government doesn't, doesn't come to the table and come up with a counter-offer. And look, the government is saying well, the Independent Pay Review Committee decided that this is what we should pay. But that was a long time before we saw double-digit inflation. And I think that people understand that things have changed since that, that review was made. It, it is the kind of year we've had that July seems like a long time ago, Absolutely. which is when that recommendation was made, uh, which was a, a flat pay increase of £1,400 for nurses, cleaners, porters and other workers. But Rachel, what have you made of the response, not just from the government, which is clinging for grim death to that pay review increase, and that is from the independent NHS pay review body. But also the Labour Party uh, think the nurses' claim of 19% is a bit ripe. I mean, obviously, granted, I think everybody understands that that 19% is a negotiating position at the nurses, though I'm sure they would be delighted to receive a 19% pay increase and not expecting to receive it. But just if we look at the politics of it, is that a weird position for the Labour Party right now to be staking out saying, uh, not sure about this? It's an awkward position for Labour and they've sort of dealt with it by not really saying very much or, or just blaming the government and saying that the government isn't negotiating and that's why these strikes are happening and they're helped in that by the fact that the government isn't negotiating. The fact that the, the Health Secretary refused until very late in the game to sit down with the union leaders at all, a guy called Steve Barclay who is, must be unique in terms of Health Secretaries 
Tories in arguing before the autumn statement that he didn't think the NHS needed more money. He, com- <laughs> he comes from the Treasury, if that, if that helps. I mean, it's, it's a point of view. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a point of view. Um, but yeah, Labour are in an awkward position here because they obviously want to hammer the government on this as much as possible, but they know as much as anyone else does that that level of pay increase for nurses and the implication that subsequent rises would be justifiable sort of across the board, all those other industries that we talked about, there isn't the money for it and they know there isn't the money for it and they don't want to make promises now that they can't keep. I think the line that they are trying to push is the idea that if the government were just a bit more reasonable, everyone could get around the table and some kind of agreement could be reached, which, to be honest, is probably the case. As you say, the nurses are not expecting a pay increase of that amount. The government is just so terrified to do that because, essentially, Rishi Sunak thinks it will make him look weak. So what you're getting instead is the idea that the government could just ban strikes and you sort of think well if that was a viable option and was going to work do you not think a previous government might have thought of it uh, steve and um, do you wonder I, i'm putting this to you as a, a fellow outsider to this country and this it, it's a thing i've never entirely understood about the united kingdom is its attitude towards the nhs and whether or not that is helping or hindering here because back where we both come from there is as there is in most broadly civilized countries a state provided health care in australia we call it medicare I've never heard Australians talking about Medicare the way British people talk about the NHS. It's regarded here more like a church than a bureaucracy. No, Medicare was not me- uh, part of the opening ceremony at the Sydney 2000 it, it Olympics. Really, it really was not. We, we just we just had like a lot of huge inflatable kangaroos <laughs> with Frankenstein's monster bolts through their necks. Or was that the closing ceremony? That's they were giving me pretty... a bad flashback, Andrew. Opportunity they, they were. We, look, we had prawns. We had giant prawns riding bicycles. <laughs> I take your point, Andrew. Like, uh, the NHS here is very much a sacred cow, and mm. I think that at times people are loath to criticise it and even think about how it could be reformed and be better. And certainly, I'm going to quote some anecdata here. This is just an experience <laughs> I've had. I found it really hard to get a doctor this year, just to see oh, a doctor face-to-face. It's next to impossible. It's, and so yeah. when you have a system like that, that has got to be punishing people. Um, mm. And so you've got to ask questions about that system and whether it needs it needs change. Um, so I, I do think there is a kind of a, a sacredness to it that makes it hard to touch um, and to discuss and to debate. And it probably needs a bit of that. Um but going back to that point about the, you know, whether the government can afford this, I mean, they seem, seem so intransigent about this, about not being able to afford to even negotiate with them for an increased pay. Um, I think what Labor was saying was that they could maybe not afford the 19%, but I think everyone acknowledges that that, that is a kind of an amber claim mm. and that you could somehow, you know, step back from that and give them something else. I mean, this is a government too that... Uh, wasted $4.4 billion, $4 billion on a PPE that was unusable and they set fire to it. Remember that? that mm. You know, like if they've got that kind of money to, to, to set fire to... To burn. Yeah. <laughs> Surely they could find it for the nurses. Well, we will see how that one plays out. But let's now look at Canada, where the House of Commons has passed a bill which, should it clear the Senate, will compel tech giants operating in Canada to compensate media outlets for farming their journalism. The bill is designed to correct the rank unfairness whereby media outlets 
let's go to the trouble and expense of reporting the news only for social media platforms to harvest advertising by distributing it, which is part of the reason why companies such as Google and Meta make enormous amounts of money, a claim that can be made by precious few media outlets. Is a table full of journalists in favour of big tech being made to cough up for profiteering (laughs) from the work of media outlets? Let's find out. Um, Steve, there is, of course, a test case in Australia, which is very much uh, what Canada is modelling itself on here. Uh, In Australia, Facebook and Google have been obliged to pay up a Treasury report out just this month uh, says it has been a success and Australia should now go after Twitter and TikTok as well. That's right. Uh, The laws came in early last year, I think it was, and it was called the News Media Bargaining Code. And what it made, it only dealt with two tech giants, Google and Facebook, as you mentioned, or Meta or whatever they're called now. Uh, And they were basically forced to the negotiation table with media outlets where they had to come up Mm. with some kind of fee that they would pay those media outlets for uh, posting their product via their their websites um, and their social media platforms. And it has been successful. Um, It's not flawless, but it's been... For example, the ABC, uh, the the organisation I work for, they said that they employed 57 journalists as a result of the money that they got from negotiating these deals and 57 journalists in areas where they didn't have... I think about at least 10 or 15 reporters in areas they weren't covering at the time. And where... In an era where we're seeing the collapse of local media Mm -hmm. and the ability to cover local councils where there's so much corruption and and courts and those kind of things, that is is really in the public interest to have money from the tech giants funding that kind of journalism. So it's been successful on that level. I think there are some flaws. There's a lack of transparency. So when you have, for example, uh, Facebook or or Google negotiating with News Corp, um, you don't find out how much money they Mm. got. And so then it makes it harder for the the little players to work out what they should be asking for. Also, these deals are only temporary. Um, Mm. I think the Facebook one is for three years. The Google one is for five years. And apparently, um, Zuckerberg has recently cut money from his company's news partnership divisions. So who knows what that means when that deal is up, whether that will continue in Australia. Bear in mind that Facebook um, pulled Australian news content off Facebook, uh, mm. when the, the government was bringing in these laws, which really was not a good look because it was in the middle of the pandemic and that suddenly meant COVID information was not available on Facebook. So they copped a caning for that. Uh, so look, it has been successful. It's not a It's not a perfect system, but it looks like other countries are following it and finding a way of funding public interest journalism. Now, Rachel, what do you think? Is there an argument against this? Because as far as I've been able to tell, the best argument that Google and Meta have been able to summon is basically, we'd like to keep all of our money, please, and we don't want to give you any. Well, I think that Google and Facebook should just pay the journalists directly. And if they want to get in touch with me, they, they can do <laughs> via, ironically, my, my Twitter DMs, which are open. Uh, look, I don't think it is uh, a coincidence that the first country that has tried this is Australia, a home of the Rupert Murdoch empire. And I think it is a country where the power balance between the tech giants and the media giants is a bit more balanced and a bit more even than it is elsewhere in other countries. And I think that the the 
that power balance is really going to come out if other, if other countries try it and that bargaining, that lack of transparency. You talked about how much various outlets are getting. That is kind of a key issue that it's quite difficult to legislate for. The other thing is that if you try and explain it, it does sound a bit weird, mainly because lots of media outlets, all media outlets, my own included, use social media mm-hmm. as a way to promote their own work and they use it for free. So the tech giants argue, hang on, the media outlets are getting something out of this too. You wrote an article and you post it and you want it shared. You actively want it shared on Twitter before Twitter became unusable and Facebook and TikTok. And you want it to rank highly in Google. So hang on, this is a symbiotic relationship. Now, if it is a symbiotic relationship, it's one with a massive structural power imbalance. But there are journalists I've spoken to who said that actually what would be more useful for media outlets would be more transparency about the algorithms and a bit more control over that so that if a social media platform doesn't like you, they can't just decide, as Elon Musk essentially is doing, they're not going to show your content Mm. anymore. That having that sort of conversation makes a lot more sense if you think about how the relationship actually is than... A, an individual would like to post a link on our on our platform. We're going to pay you for that, which I think is just it's, it's a harder argument to make. I mean, the relationship, as Rachel correctly points out, Steve, is obviously symbiotic, and at best, uh, both parties to it get something out of it. But did you learn anything from the Australian experience about where the power does now really lie during that period where Meta threw a big huff uh, and threw all the Australian news content off their sites? Did everybody suddenly start losing readers and listeners? Uh, well, it was only for a day or two from memory. It was February last year, I think. So that dummy spit was a temporary one. So we didn't really get a good um, measure of it. Obviously, Facebook at the time thought it was worth um, having that Australian media back on their platform. So you could see the kind of the power going back and forth. Certainly, there was a lot of lobbying going on, but it was lobbying from both sides. Mm. And I think Rachel's point's a good one, is that News Corp dominates the the media um, in Australia, has uh, you know over 60% of the newspapers across the met- metropolitan areas. Which, which has long been just a, a healthy and normal state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, so, so, um, so, yes, and I think it's no accident that that happened because of that. And News Corp has been traditionally power, powerful in Australia and was in the ears of uh, politicians, as was uh, the, the other main media organisation, Nine, the main commercial media organisation in Australia, Nine. They were into the politicians about it too. So, yes, it has been advantageous to them. Um, and it is a bit of a battle of who is the more powerful. Um, obviously... In this instance, Facebook and Google came to the party, but Twitter, now owned by Elon Musk, if the Australian Treasury is suggesting through this report that they may want to start co-opting them, and it is co-opting because they're basically saying, if you don't negotiate uh, a deal, we will force you to compulsory arbitration. So wouldn't that be enjoyable to watch? I don't know if they're... (laughs) I don't know, it'd be like the Leveson Inquiry or something. I don't know if we could do it publicly. I've I've changed my mind. I'm in support of this now just for the prospect of watching the Australian government take on Elon Musk. Uh, Yeah, that that, that would be quite the spectacle. That that episode of The Simpsons is is coming back to mind uh, very, very quickly. Uh, Just finally on this, Rachel, is there a trend here, and this is possibly wishful thinking on my part, that we are starting to see more of national governments being a bit less cowed by big tech and and are starting to... I mean, we've... We've seen the EU obviously taking on Google in fairly spectacular form over the last couple of years. But is there now more of a thing of government starting to trying to remind the big tech giants who is actually in charge? 
Definitely. And it's not just the EU either. The UK has the online harms bill, which is something the government is trying to push through, which has a whole load of issues more than I can possibly count, but essentially does try and do the same thing, which is say you guys are really powerful, you can't just do what you want. The internet isn't a Wild West anymore, it's been 20, 30 years. Um, we are national governments, we want you to be accountable and we are going to pass laws that make you accountable and you can't just sort of scream and shout and go, we're the internet, you know, let's <laughs> let's take this to court and let's see. And you know, the, the EU's data protection legislation, for example, there was a huge amount of backlash against that, but they, they passed it, GDPR, and it, it works and it has an impact and actually... Like it has a lot of glitches in it, uh, but it is more or less doing what it was designed to do. So I think there is this understanding, especially because if you look at how much these tech businesses are worth, I mean, they're, they're worth small or even medium to sized countries at, at the moment. Uh, they can't just be act however they want and be run by Silicon Valley tech bros in, in, in hoodies, however much Elon Musk might might hope for that. Well, sticking with the theme of small to medium-sized countries, let's look now at the Netherlands, which early next week seems poised to become the latest nation to subscribe to the modish vogue of apologising for long-past misdeeds. Specifically, the Netherlands government will say sorry for the country's role in the slave trade, which was indeed extensive, involving Africa, South America and the East Indies, and lasting until 1873, when slavery finally ended in the Dutch colony of Suriname. A couple of years back on Monocle 24's The Big Interview, I spoke to Kevin Rudd, who as Prime Minister of Australia had apologised to Australia's Indigenous people. I asked him then what he perceived as the value of such statements. Think about this. When you've really screwed somebody over in your life, Mm -hmm. if you ever have, and you say one day, well, okay, let's just get on with it, without ever actually saying... That tends to be a tough sell. uh, Tends to be a tough sell. And if you put yourself for a moment in the mind's eye of an Indigenous Australian, being on the receiving end of a couple of centuries of accentuated racism, it doesn't work. So the dignity of a human transaction, which is, I have wronged you, and I, on behalf of all governments in this parliament so assembled past, this parliament here assembled today and the people of this country tender a formal apology to you, the first occupants of this country... It has a substantive effect as well as opening the door of the heart and the mind to what you then do at a practical level to get on with each other. Others will comment on 10 years later the extent to which it had an enduring effect. I think it's made it much harder for the conservative forces in Australia to roll all that back and to play the old racisms of the past. That was Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, speaking to Monocle 24's The Big Interview in 2020. Uh, and, and Steve, Rudd there, I think, he, he outlines how these things are supposed to work. He was charting the journey there from the symbolic gesture to the practical consequences. But if we look at that particular example from our, our shared homeland where that apology was eventually issued, and there had been years of clamour for that, obviously uh, Kevin Rudd's predecessor as Prime Minister, John Howard, I think he was willing to go so far as to make a sort of what he des- described as a statement of regret, but didn't actually want to say sorry because I think he realised that his Conservative base would lose their minds over it. But do you get the sense that it has made a meaningful difference a few years down the track that 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 apology was issued on behalf of the Commonwealth of Australia. I think if you look at the crowds of Indigenous people who turned up for that apology Mm -hmm. in the Parliament, that tells you what you need to know. I think owning up to your own history is 
important for any country. Um, and I think that apology, it's important to know it didn't come from nowhere. There was a big report over a decade earlier mm-hmm. than that um, into the policy of forcibly removing Indigenous children from their families and the intergenerational trauma that it caused and continues to cause this mm. day. Incredibly important to acknowledge that kind of thing. Um, what you're talking to about what John Howard said, it's interesting when I heard you say that, I've heard similar leaders, similarly leaders of countries express their sorrow for slavery but not go for the full mm. the full way. I think, if, in fact, I think um, Prince William said something similar when he was in Jamaica um, within the last 12 months. Didn't go the full apology but expressed sorrow, words to that effect. I think it really it's really important to um, own up and apologise and, and I think it can... Um, give meaning to people. And of course, there are people in the Netherlands, um, uh, Dutch citizens who are the descendants of slaves. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it means something to them. And this proposed apology, once again, comes out, I think, of a, a report to the parliament. So they're not. these apologies are not coming out of nowhere. They're coming out of um, recognition of what went on. And the Dutch, uh, you know, 250 years of slavery involving 600,000 slaves. It was a lot. That is a lot to apologise for. Um, and, and and it's, yeah, it's not insignificant. Uh, Rachel, we've seen this country, the United Kingdom, uh, float a few such gestures in recent years as well. Tony Blair, if memory serves correctly, apologised for Britain's role in the slave trade. David Cameron uh, for the action of uh, British Army soldiers on Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland. Do you get the sense that those have, well in the grand scheme of things, helped? Uh, I think the distinction between expressing sorrow and saying sorry is actually quite significant. Mm. And going up to that line and sort of tiptoeing around it and acknowledging the wrongs of the past without actually saying, you know, we apologise, takes some of the accountability out of it. And really, if you take what what Kevin Rudd was was saying to you and and, and what... what what he said the the impact is it's in the being able to move on from it essentially and getting the person or the side that contributed to it actually does understand what it is that they have done and are taking responsibility for it which you don't get so much if you just as I say tiptoe around it interestingly there is some of this in the Harry and Meghan documentary (laughs) um, to, to sort of bring it back to that I think it's difficult when it comes to conversations about slavery for all kinds of reasons one of which is that there is often the expectation that the apology will then be matched by reparations Mm. which is a a separate issue but a linked issue and is certainly part of the campaign to get European countries uh, to sort of be accountable for what they did in a financial sense and the pressure isn't just on the Netherlands or the UK it's also on France and Portugal and Belgium and other countries like that obviously that is much more sort of controversial but in this country we can't even get to a point where children are taught about the UK's part in the slave trade. Instead, at school, they are taught about how William Wilberforce abolished (laughs) slavery. They're taught the end, but not the beginning. And until we can have that full conversation, I don't think we're going to be able to to move forward that effectively. But just to follow that up, Rachel, where do you come to... Because a lot of arguments are made against the idea of apologising for historical events, and a lot of those arguments are made in incredibly bad faith by quite unpleasant people. But one of the ones that comes up a lot in this country, and not that I am 
am suggesting that the history of the United Kingdom is uniquely dreadful or you necessarily have more to apologise for than anybody else, is that it's the slippery slope argument. It's like, where do you stop? And surely if you you pursue this idea to its logical conclusion, everybody should probably apologise to everybody else about something at some point. Yes, and a point that is often made is that that African countries were themselves involved in the slave trade too through the enslaving of their mm. own people and allowing the British and others to ship them off to Caribbean islands. Uh, nobody's history comes out of this flawlessly. I think it's about education as much as it is about blame mm. uh, and it is about telling the, the story of our histories in which there is much that is positive and also quite a lot that really isn't in a way that doesn't try and sanitise it and that actually points out that we have different values now and we have made progress and part of acknowledging that you have made progress is acknowledging that the way you behaved in the past wasn't acceptable by today's moral standards. Uh, Steve, to, to take this back to Australia, do you get the, the feeling that the argument there moved on at all, uh, that any more useful conversations were had or progress was made after the apology was issued? Because there is resistance to apologies. People, the one thing I think that I've noticed everywhere I have been, and it's a, it's quite a few places at this point, is that people get really defensive about their own country. It's quite an instinctive thing. People like to think well of the place they come from. They don't like to think that it is done bad things or that it is thought badly of. And according to at least one poll in the Netherlands, 50% of Dutch people are against uh, issuing a formal apology for the slave trade. Only 38% are in favour. To go back to what Rachel was suggesting, the idea that you, you acknowledge that wrongs were done in your country's name and you learn from them. Has that progress in Australia gone as you might have hoped it might? Well, it was one step along the process. And I think um, for Indigenous people, it was important that what happened, it was acknowledged that it was wrong. Um, But also there were reparations. There Mm. was compensation in in relation to stolen generations. And from memory, that happened through the the states um, rather than the federal government. Um, on the issue of, you know, people, there was a big debate around the, there were culture wars around this in Australia about what people were referring to the black armed armband version of history where you're always looking at the bad stuff. Well, I just, I'm sorry, you just look at the truth, right? You look at the good and the bad. And there are some people willing to talk about their ancestors with pride. Well, if you're willing to do that, you can take a bit of shame as well, I think. You know, I just think it goes both ways. Um, And you want an honest um, view of your history because you want to look at your history and not make the same mistakes again. Um, It does... You know, you've just got to you've just got to take the good with the bad, and I think um, when it comes back to the, the the apology, and that was in 2008. Now, um, you know, like it was a start of a process of reconciliation. There's now a debate in Australia about having an Indigenous voice to Parliament, mm-hmm. so it's a constant conversation about what can be done about the past and improve the future. Well, we'll return now to the world of big tech and Twitter enthusiasts fearing that its new helmsman is bearing down on the iceberg at heedless velocity can preemptively salvage something from the wreckage. Jettisoned along with many staff and much common sense is a veritable gallimorphy of Twitter ephemera which will be auctioned next month. Although on current form, if you wait a while longer, you might pick up the entire company for the price of a round of drinks. But until that uh, happy eventuality, Rachel, what would you bid for a new 
neon Twitter bird logo. I'm not making these up. Or a sort of, I think it's kind of a, it's a vertical wooden planter shaped like an that at the out, Like the symbol. at sign. I don't want any of that. I want the bean bags. I want the bean bags that the Twitter tech CEOs and, and the top team were sitting on drinking their beer where they thought it'd be a great idea to sell their whole thing and trash their <laughs> reputation for Elon Musk. That is what I want I in my sitting room. I think it was something stronger than beer they might have been <laughs> drinking. Um, e- Elon Musk reckons, uh, Steve, that Twitter is currently losing $4 million a day, which, you know, sooner or later starts to add up into real money. I don't know if bunging out a few posh chairs is going to keep the lights no, on terrifically I, I, long. No, and I don't think it's an excuse to auction the furniture, frankly. I mean, he should do what normal people do when you have excess <laughs> furniture, and that is put it on the street. <laughs> Let other people have it. With a sign saying, please take <laughs> Please <this."> take. <laughs> yes, please take me. Um, yeah, no, so I think he's being greedy. Um, did you glean anything about Twitter's just general office aesthetic? From I mean, some in fairness, some of it looks quite nice. It it, <laughs> it it does, but it's part of this. It's part of this thing where like the tech companies had all this cool gadgetry stuff to try and keep people at work as long as possible. So they've got stuff like a full rotisserie oven there and a whole lot of like high tech cooking equipment. And I I mean. My office, it'd be nice if they could get a decent microwave, sure, but I don't really want to be roasting chicken in the office. And the fact that they had that kind of suggests that they were expecting staff to do that. Or, again, they were very drunk on something stronger than, than beer and they just went on a shopping spree at four in the morning and went, oh, we've got all this stuff. Well, I mean, we've, we've, Shove it in the kitchen. We, we've all done that. Um, I, I am reliably informed that a quote from a Twitter spokesperson holds that if anyone genuinely thinks that the revenue from selling a couple of computers and chairs will pay for the mountain there, then they're a moron. <laughs> um, I suspect that might have been a recently unemployed or shortly to be unemployed uh, Twitter spokesperson. Uh, Steve, why is there so much kitchen equipment? I don't know. It just it feels so <laughs> Californian this list, it's doesn't it? It's like they're running an entire franchise of something. No, I've got to confess I haven't looked at the whole catalogue, but I did There's know... There's a lot of kitchen equipment. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a $17,000 braising pan, which I've got no idea what that is. Um, there was also a 20-gallon... Is it a braising pan made out of, I don't know, crushed diamonds with a gold handle? It's, I know, it's extraordinary. Maybe ivory? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I, I, got, I got mine off Amazon for a tenner. <laughs> I got mine off the street with some furniture. Um, I There's also a 20-gallon vegetable dryer. What the hell is that? What are these people doing? Oh, no wonder they're vegetables. No wonder I, I know we're, we're, we're damp vegetables. A particular problem. I, with I didn't know they were a problem anywhere. No wonder Musk wants to build motels and just put the staff in there like they're Sea Org members in the Church of Scientology. I mean, it's just you know there was obviously some indulgence going on here. It uh, had to had to stop, Andrew. Uh, like, uh, uh, is nobody tempted by any of this? The beanbags. I would totally just, take just, the beanbags. Just, just, yeah. just the beanbags. Um, just a, a final thought on this, because I know both of you uh, do have Twitter accounts and do use Twitter. <laughs> and obviously, I encourage our listeners to, to follow you both, and indeed me, immediately. But um, just quickly from each of you, you first, Rachel, is, is Twitter doomed slash should it be? Oh, it's definitely getting worse. And I wish it wasn't. And I can't put my finger on exactly what but it, it feels like it's spiralling. Uh, I would have so much more free time if it did just blow up, but then where would I get my cat photos? <laughs> uh, and Steve? I still love using it for specialty areas, like if you want to follow good people for the war in Ukraine, that kind mm. of thing, but I am finding it increasingly difficult when you just switch on for five minutes to just you know waste time that you don't get what you want to see, mm. and it, it, it feels like it's going out the door. 
Yeah, I, I have doubts about my algorithm as of today. I'm getting a lot of targeted ads for Monocle. It's just like, yeah, I, I know, I know. I'm, I'm already on board, sold already. Um, Steve Kinane and Rachel Cunliffe, thank you both very much for joining us. Uh, it is time now, finally, on the show for our letter from New York City. Here is Henry Ree Sheridan. A magician's glamorous assistant. A priest listening to a penitent in a confessional. A marine scientist studying sharks from the relative safety of a shark cage. There aren't many jobs that involve being in a box. Some might even argue that a shark cage isn't a proper box. But whatever your position on the cage as box debate, we should all be able to agree that soon there'll be one less box job. For decades, station agents in the New York City subway have done their jobs from within locked, bulletproof glass booths. Their original job was to sell coin-like subway tokens to riders. But since the introduction of the Metro card in 1998, the booth workers have had less and less to do. They sit in their locked boxes. They occasionally talk into weird, long microphones. The microphones function as umbilical cords, transmitting directions from the brains and mouths of the station agents into the ears and brains of tourists on the other side of the bulletproof glass. Now the MetroCard system is going to be replaced by the contactless omni-payment system. This will leave the station agents with even less to do. What time is it? It's Omni Education Time. Omni is the new way to pay for your subway and bus rides. The Transit Workers Union recognizes that this could mean the end of the line. For many of its members' contracts, in a bid to avoid layoffs, the union has negotiated a seismic shift in responsibilities for station agents. They're going to let the agents out of the booths. And that's how you use Omni. For more information, please check out our website. And don't forget to wear your mask. It is an end of an era for subway token booths. The MTA announcing that transit officials will no longer sit inside. MTA officials have said agents will be equipped with cell phones to notify managers or the NYPD of problems they encounter as they roam the stations with more freedom than ever before. We sat in a booth with our hands tied, not really being able to provide a full customer service like we were used to. But safety is a concern among... The Transit Workers Union and the MTA are spinning the development as a leap forward in subway service provision. But I can't help but suspect that after decades of boothhood, subway agents must have evolved into a self-selecting group of people who prefer to stay inside the box. I started reading through news articles looking to get the station agent's perspective on these developments. One quote in particular jumped out at me. It's from a report on the NBC New York website titled, Is this the end of the line for token booths in NYC subway stations? Here's the quote. As long as the booths are there, we can retreat. I don't see a problem. 
This quote struck me as expressing a measured ambivalence that is plausibly representative of the feelings of at least a plurality of station agents. I was willing to leave it at that and move on. But then I came to the name of the station agent that the quote was extracted from, and my mind was blown into a thousand pieces. His name was Dwayne Boothman. B-O-O-T-H-M-A-N. Boothman. This person has probably spent their entire working life to this point inside a booth. And his name is Boothman. Did Dwayne's father work in a booth? What about his father's father and his father's father's father? Does the Boothman's Boothmanship predate subway booths? Did Dwayne Boothman's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather sit in a booth next to the gates of a medieval city, collecting fees for entry or free passage? We'll never know. The NBC article contains no further information about Dwayne. But I can't stop thinking about him. I pity Dwayne for being forced out of his booth. I envy Dwayne for the sense of vocation that his name must impart. I want a booth of my own. Not a physical booth, but a psycho-spiritual booth with bulletproof glass, inside of which I'm completely protected. I don't mind coming out of my booth occasionally. This might be a requirement for executing necessary social functions. But as long as the booth is there, I can retreat. I don't see a problem. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, and the chamber orchestra that lives in his flat with him. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Rachel Cunliffe and Steve Kinane. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Thank you.